1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Food offered to idols. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are, are, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we turn to your, your word, your scripture, we pray that your spirit will open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, open our hearts that we might believe. May the words of my mouth be useful to you and to your people today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The whole process, the whole journey of becoming a Christian, becoming a Christ follower, it starts with hearing the good news. Somewhere, somehow, some way you heard about how Jesus loves you, how God saw you where we are and came down and dwelt among us to become like us in every way so that he can intercede for us, so that he can satisfy his own standards in himself and carry those of us who don't meet his standards into his new family. We had to hear the good word, hear the good news. And then after hearing it, no matter how we encountered it, whether we read it or heard someone's stories or listened to a sermon or sang a song or went on a hike, wherever it is that your story took you to, encounter the good news about Jesus being the victorious Lord. You, had to, you hear it and believe it. 
And when you believed the good news that was proclaimed, you crossed over from death and into life. You went from being one who was far to one who was brought near. You went from being an enemy of God, an object of wrath, and now being daughters and sons of the King Most High. All this happens because of his generosity and his provision and his love so that there's no way we can earn it through doing enough good things or enough changes or enough good habits, but we do it just by believing God being God, Jesus being Jesus. And when we believe, he credits our account with righteousness. He credits our account as justified. In this moment, we become regenerate. God opens our eyes so that we might see him. In this moment, we become adopted, one who was an orphan spiritually and now has a family. We become justified, where God declares that we are not only innocent of what we are accused of, it's as if we were never accused of our wrongs and our failings. And then we are sanctified, where we are set apart to God's mission. We are set apart to his holy ways and his holy life, so that in our lives, we are part of the declaration of God's goodness from now until eternity. Did you know that all happened, by the way? Probably at VBS some day years ago. Did you know that happened when you were in your 20s or in your 30s and you thought, man, things are looking bleak? All that happened. And now we begin a journey as part of Christ's family, as part of the community the physical expression of God's love on earth. We become part of the church. And frankly, this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? It's so wonderful to hear the good news that the, the God of the universe came and dwelt among us. It's so wonderful to hear the good news that he conquered our mortal enemy, death itself. It's so wonderful to hear the news that no matter what we have done or what we have not done, no matter how our life has turned out, God sees us as his daughter, as his son, whom he knows by name. And he loves us as he basically includes us in his love for his son, Jesus. All that is wonderful news. And then he says, and now you're in this community of faith that you did not choose, nor did they choose you, but God chose us to be together in family, right? And that's supposed to be just the most wonderful, loving group that never has any problems because Jesus is at the top and we are all looking to Jesus and we are filled with nothing but ease and love for one another, right? Okay, you get the joke too. Because it's not always that way, is it? And where the rubber meets the road is when we, we, it's easy for us to turn and to confess and to repent to God. It's a lot easier than to continue to now walk in that life, in that newness of life. One of the things I like to, to try to say, I like to highlight, instead of always just saying when we become a Christian, because we have this idea of becoming a Christian as an event that occurred at a point in our past. Or if you were like me, I was raised in a Methodist church, that event that occurred a bunch of times during my multiple youth events that I gave my life to Christ just to make sure I did it right to finally. But becoming a Christian is not merely a point in our past, but the becoming a Christian 
is an ongoing, ever-present reality. That becoming is continued until Christ comes again or we are with him in his presence. Correct? So that's why the rubber meets the road. It becomes a little more difficult when we have to live life together. Living life together. That's why a bulk of the New Testament goes beyond just telling the good news, the gospel stories of Jesus coming in victorious. And by the way, there's all these wonderful encounters that Jesus has. The woman at the well, and her life has changed forever. The woman to whom Jesus rescued from being stoned. The son who was dead and he raised to life. But you know what we don't get? We don't get many stories of what happened afterwards, do we? We just get those conversion moments. We just get those high moments. We just get Zacchaeus coming down from the tree, jumping up and down for joy and throwing a dinner. We don't see Zacchaeus six months later when he doesn't have as much money as he used to. We don't see Zacchaeus a year and a half later when his tax collector friends have turned their backs on him. We don't see Zacchaeus 10 years later when he's an elder in the church. We do get a glimmer of Onesimus. Remember Onesimus, the slave who ran away from Philemon? That it's, it's possible, even probable, that he became the bishop in Ephesus years later. But still, we don't know the, all the, the steps and the trials. In the vision team that meets every uh, week on Sunday mornings, we've been going around and sharing our stories, and it's so exciting to hear how God reached out and called each of us to him. All of our stories are so unique and different, and yet they are so similar in that God calls us. He calls us, we hear, we repent, we believe, and we live a new life. So here we have these letters that are written to these gatherings, these Christ followings, not just Christian, but I like to use the term Christ follower because that encapsulates what we are doing on being continually being a Christian. We are Christ following. We have all these letters to these churches that address real life contextual issues that Paul or Peter or John or any other author was writing to address. So here we have 1 Corinthians. It starts, now concerning, now concerning the food sacrificed to idols. So this is an issue that Paul was made aware of that happens to be an issue in the Corinthian church. Now, I'm just going to skip ahead and ask, do we happen to have any real idol meat issues going on in this church? Is there there a divide currently in the PCKS community about whether or not we can eat meat sacrificed to idols? Speaking of which, what farmer's market would we have to go to to find organic, grass-fed, idol-sacrificed meat? Right? So this is kind of an interesting little... um, Uh, example and context, a case study, because it's not one that we relate to intuitively, so it almost allows us to actually be detached and see what the real principles are. So that's what I hope to do today. Now concerning the food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. The fact that that's in quotes seems to be that's that's an idea that they were kicking around in the Corinthian church. All of us possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, and love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something uh, does not yet have necessary... 
the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to eating food offered to idols, dot, dot, dot. So what's the setting here? What's the issue with this food being offered to idols? Understanding the social context um, of idol sacrifice is, is important for us to move forward. So meat was not easily available. Uh, maybe some of us have ever lived in a world where meat was not readily available. I spent two weeks living in Ghana, and I recognized that um, a chicken being eaten by a family was, was a special occurrence. It was a rare occurrence, so much that every little piece was truly cherished. Honestly, in our culture, we throw away a lot of the most cherished parts. Um, there's a lot of us in our culture, we want, to, we want to trim away all the fat. And most of the rest of the world throughout the history of humanity would be aghast that we would throw away the best, most flavorful, most nutrient-rich part. But I still cut it off anyway. Meat was not easily accessible. Many Romans would have been vegetarian most of the time because meat was expensive and not easily come by. But now in these cities where they had multiple religions, multiple uh, 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 religious sects, um, there were cults that often included animal sacrifice. And those cults provided some of the most common occasions where many got to eat meat. There was archaeological evidence to show that some of the temples indeed had dining halls built into them so that after the sacrifices were made, the people would come and feast and celebrate and make use of the, of the animals that were sacrificed. In the ancient Near East religious life, um, religious life was not quite very separate from social or civic life. We've created a space in our culture where we keep um, church and state separate. We keep, regular, we keep Sunday and, and secular as separate, but that was not so much the case in this day and age. Some of the Corinthian people in this new church actually joined these cultic events without hesitation. They enjoyed them as an extension of their civic and social life, and they feasted. They consumed the meat. They consumed the meal. I like to watch reels on the Instagram and Facebook where, of cooking, and I love this guy. This name is the Food Ranger. I'm not, this is not a plug for him. I, I usually put it on mute because he's kind of annoying when he talks, but he travels the world and shows street foods being made everywhere, and he has a knack for learning languages. So he's in Pakistan. He speaks he speaks it to the locals in their tongue. He's, he's all over China, and he speaks to them in their tongue. And it's amazing. And often they have these vats, these huge cauldrons of food being cooked up. And it's just so amazing to watch. And I think that's kind of the event that people would go to, to eat, to celebrate life, to eat together with their communities. And some of the Corinthians in the church freely did so. They had knowledge they had the correct knowledge that their monotheistic faith in the one God, the one true God, would not be impeded by going and eating a bowl of rice and, and goat. That's not going to dethrone them or derail them from knowing who Jesus is in, in their life. But Paul's primary concern in this passage, and also in chapter, later in chapter 10, would not have been about whether or not the meat itself was unholy. It was never a question of whether or not this meat could or could not be eaten. It was a question of how are the people perceiving what it means to go to the event, what it means to go to the source, what it means to eat that meat that was presented in a different way. It was the eating of meat because it could have involved certain forms of attendance in cults. 
maybe some of the cults that these people formerly belonged to. They formerly worshipped at. Eating food sacrificed to idols becomes controversial when some in Corinth who have considerable knowledge and but inconsiderately exercised their freedom, their power to, dec- to, de- to the degree of destroying those who've not yes, yet possessed that knowledge. So here you have some people who've grown to the point in their faith, their knowledge of Jesus, that Jesus is the one and only God, that he's the true God. And all other things that we might call gods are actually empty and powerless unless we give our lives to them to give them power. Some have known this knowledge. They've grown to that point. But others have not. Others don't understand this, and they are considered to be those that don't possess the knowledge and therefore have a weak conscience. Paul's worried that those whose consciences are weak might join with those in eating the food and still believe that there are other gods and idols at work, at play, enacted by the action of their eating. For this reason, Paul believes that it's better to refrain from eating the meat sacrificed to idols. In Paul's own words, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. If food is the cause of their falling. So what is, their, what is Paul's concern? The condition of the person's heart. The place in which they are at spiritually. The knowledge that they possess and have accepted and understood It's interesting to me that that for Paul, those who have not yet heard the correct knowledge have the correct knowledge about God and about the idols and about the meats, about the celebrations. Those that don't have that yet are actually considered weak in conscience, not weak in faith. Do you see the difference? It's not that their faith is weak. Their faith is quite strong. Their faith is real. Their faith is sincere. Their faith is life-giving. It's just that their conscience isn't caught up to some knowledge yet. So what is the community of Christ followers to do? What should the immature, should the immature become mature? Should the unknowledgeable gain knowledge? Should the weak be encouraged to become strong? Don't you think that's what we would think is probably the normal course of action? Oh, if you're weak in something, you should strengthen it. Paul's solution to this conflict is not to encourage the weak to grow strong, to gain more knowledge. Instead, he asks those with the knowledge to grow in their love. I'm going to say that again. Paul asks those who are mature, those with the knowledge, those who are strong in conscience, to grow in their love for the weak. He equates offending a member. He equates it to a member of offending a member of your family. He equates offending one of them with sinning against them, and moreover, as sinning against Christ Himself. See, it's the love that binds. It's the love that binds and strengthens our Christian community, our Christ-following community. Remember when we heard the good news. We believed the good news, we professed the good news, and we were regenerate and adopted and justified, and now we're sanctified 
but he joins us together in a community of people, a humanity, a new humanity, a new creation that he's making to be his people, to be his light, to be his proclamation of good news, to be his foretaste of the new kingdom for a new humanity, for a new world. And he's thrown us together to be this new taste. Welcome. If you're a visitor, welcome. This is what we're about. Because it's the love of Christ that binds and strengthens this community, not knowledge. Not knowing the right answers, not having the right theology, not having the right papers or the right books on the shelf or the right answers to your questions. It's not being able to, to, to list out the right doctrines. And believe me, I like right doctrines. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. It kind of goes with the, with the robe. And yes, I have a robe. If you want to see it, I, I can wear it someday. It goes with the territory. I love good doctrine. I love a good paper on good doctrine. I love a good book about papers about good doctrine. I love buying new books that I will never get to read, but I just want to make sure that they're there in case I get to read them. I can say this because my wife is not here because she, she's so over all the books that come into the house. I am so grateful for, for electronic books because then she can't see them arrive. And she's happy that they no longer take up space. So I get it. I love me some good knowledge. I love me some books. But Paul says, rightly, knowledge makes us arrogant. It puffs us up. But love builds up. And gaining knowledge does not mean you've gained love. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that the church will be united when those with knowledge are careful in choosing what they can do and don't do when they choose to care for the siblings with weaker conscience. The church will be united when the knowledgeable take care of the unknowledgeable. When the strong in conscience take care of the weak in conscience. That's when the church will be united. That's when this new love will be expressed and seen and shown to all the world. Love is the ultimate criterion. Therefore, love for the Christian community is what should guide our actions. The Christ believer's freedom is limited, first of all, because Christ's believers belong to Christ himself. We are enslaved, essentially, to Christ. We are yoked to him because he's made us part of his community. And in this community, it is the opinion of the ones less certain in their faith that need to be oriented to orienting everybody else's decisions. Later on, I'm going to remind you to pray for Dylan and look out for Dylan, because where is he right now? He's out at boot camp. And if you've ever had the opportunity to run in platoon with a group of humans in some kind of formation, like a, like a squad or a platoon, you don't run at the speed of the fastest runner, do you? Slowpokes, keep up. <sighs> Let's just lose them. Is that the way it works? No, what pace do you run at? You run at the pace of your slowest member so that you can stay, what? Together. And I think the same applies to Christ's community here. This is indeed how love should be understood in, the Christ, in Christ believers' communities. Love, when it comes to the church, is an active feeling that must be translated into acts and actions rather than in good feelings towards the others. When I asked a few uh, 
thought that now that we're all together because we're in Christ and his spirit is dwelling among us, we never have any problems with each other, you all laughed, right? Because you've tasted and experienced that even though the Holy Spirit is still with us and Christ is still the Lord of us and we are all professing allegiance to him, we still get, well, snippy with each other, don't we? We still get it on each other's nerves, don't we? We still sometimes offend and wound each other, don't we? Sometimes grievously, sometimes minimally. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a little nick every time. I'm, I've told you this before, but I'll tell you again. I asked a, a legendary pastor in our presbytery when I was a young pastor. I said, Rob, tell me what I need to know about being a minister. And he looked at me and he said, sheep bite. I bought him a beer for that. That wasn't encouraging, was it? Sheep bite. But we choose to love. We choose to walk at the pace of those with the weak conscience. We choose to care for those that don't have the right knowledge yet or may never achieve the right knowledge. The love of community does not mean you have to like each other. Or that you have to agree with each other. Or that you have to value the things that they value. Or you don't have to decide to form how they understand the world or their place in the world. But instead, rather, you have to modify your own behavior in order to protect them and to make sure that they are not offended by your behavior. Make sure they are not displaced. To make sure that they are not disrupted to make sure that they are not knocked down in their faith. See, there's the thing. We sometimes get in this issue about um, the real topic we're discussing here is deference, showing deference to another, deferring your freedoms, deferring your ideas, deferring your opportunities for the sake of another is deference. And often we get into somebody saying, like, you don't want to offend somebody. Now, the offense that is being talking, talked about here in this passage is not saying, oh, I'm shocked and outraged that you did that or you feel you can do this. It's more of bringing somebody into doing something that by their own conscience they feel they shouldn't. You know, it's the guy who says, come on, Stevie, we can do this. Uh, your parents won't mind. Oh, I think I'm going to get in trouble. Nah, come on, come do it with us anyway. I think that's the key offense that Paul's talking about here, not the righteous offense of, I can't believe you would ever do that. But we'll figure that out in time. It's not enough to know unless it drives you to live out a life of love. Merely having good theology is not enough. So what are our examples here in this day and age since sac sacrificial meat is not really an option for us? What are the idols that we offer our lives to? What are the ideas that we have strong and weak consciences about? In the church communities that I grew up in, we had discussions over whether or not you should or could listen to music by secular artists on the secular radio. I don't know. I don't participate in that discussion anymore. But at one point, that was a big deal to some people. And then we had discussion about whether or not a, a true Christian, a mature Christian, was allowed to have a glass of wine or a, a, a beer with a friend, or uh, what, a, a, any kind of a alcoholic beverage. You, by the way, you know what's interesting about these questions of deference of the weaker brother, the weaker sister? 
everybody thinks they're in the position of strength, right? The person, let's go back to the meat example, the people who recognize that there's only one God and that this, um, this goat who sacrificed to Dionysus is, is, is just, it's just a meal, and we can thank Jesus for it. But the person who thinks, oh, no way, if I go and do that, now I'm participating in worshiping another God, and I can't do that. Can you see how they have a position of maturity about their position? In the same way, somebody says, you know what, I'm free in Christ. Um, I can have a nice glass of wine with a, with a nice steak. Great. But can you see somebody who says, but don't you understand how that wine has destroyed so many lives? Either position can be articulated from a position that seems what? Wise, correct, godly. A friend of mine, uh, he's, use, he's, he's dealing with a situation in his youth group. They're at the Christian school, and there's some 11th grade young men who've been, well, they've, they've really gotten into theology lately. And they've decided that the current state of praise music being sung at their Christian school is weak theologically and kind of empty of value. And on one level, I can go, hmm, I see their point. On another level, I can see, yeah, maybe that's not really a great song to Jesus, more of a prom song to Jesus. Okay, I get it. But their response that my friend is dealing with is they've chosen to sit down and read their Bibles during worship time. Oh, they've gone from having thoughts to challenging questions to making conclusions to outright arrogance and no love. Ouch. Isn't it kind of weird how they can actually have the right answers and the right knowledge, but have not love? They're not building up. They're only tearing down, and they're poisoning their soul. And they're poisoning their community around them. So again, I remind us, merely having right knowledge and good theology is insufficient to know how to live in Christ just having right knowledge will not make you a good Christ follower. Knowing is one thing, but choosing the behavior that will not offend the other members of the community is another. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we put aside our own convictions, our own desires, our own preferences for the sake of caring and loving others. That is a mark. That is a hallmark of what it means to follow Jesus. And for that, only, for that love, it's understood as a deep concern for other members in community. That love that cares for one another. That love that shows deference to one another. That love that says, I will put aside my desires. And let's be honest, if I asked you if meat was an issue and I said, hey, let's all be vegetarians, I think some of us might go, really, do I have to? I hear the comments. I know the statements. I've been there. If some of us said, do I really have to? Wait, for the sake of loving my, my neighbors who do have alcohol issues, I got to give up offering them a beer? I, 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 for the sake of loving my church, I have to stop trying to infuse my political views of the world into the church community? Oh, wait, now I'm stepping on toes. There's so many ways that we can form a, a false Jesus, a false savior, a false idol that is where we get our sustenance from, our meaning from, our identity from, our just comfort from. 
And if that is causing another person to go down and mistake Jesus' love for them and fall into an idol, then, then it's not worth it. Let us be loving enough. Let us be marked with love that we are willing to eschew anything that we have to to build up those around us. Even if it means we have to be bit. Even if it means we have to be sniped at. Even if it means we've been wounded and we have to forgive those who've wounded us. Why? Somewhere I read once that love, what? Covers a multitude of sins. And the very core of our good news is that one who had no sin took on all our sin so that we could be made new. And then he said, go and follow me and do likewise. Lord, help us with this message. Help us with this teaching. It sounds so good and so easy to talk about. And then all of a sudden, Lord, you put us in real life church where we have to practice it. So, Lord, we, we beg you, help us. Fill us with love. Give us wisdom. Encourage us to make the steps that we need to to make this community built up and not torn down. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends.